0: Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your beauty, for your grandeur, for the way in which you reveal yourself to us, and then in turn you reveal yourself in us, eventually to reveal yourself through us to others. God, and when we hear a great piece of music, when we stand on our tiptoes, lift our hands in the air to sing your praise, when we gather together to honor you through the the giving of our finances through the saying of the prayers through the study of your word we do so because you are God and there is no other because you are worthy and so it is your worthiness that we have in sight as we open your word together and we pray God that you would speak to us that you would go beyond what any human order is capable of that you would go beyond my abilities or capabilities that you would supersede my notes that you would walk all over my plans that you would speak in this place that we would hear your voice we would see you with our eyes and hear you with our ears and perceive you with our hearts and that we would turn and you would heal us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. How are you today? You figured out the 919 thing. Nice work. You did it. Not too bad. Somebody, somebody said to me this morning, I was talking, and he goes, he goes, oh, it's like Fullerton free daylight savings time. That's what this feels like a little bit. I'm like, all right, I can feel that. Uh, We are finishing up a vision series this morning, and uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're really happy that you're here. We hope that in time you will feel like this is family and this is home for you. We certainly don't want you to feel like a guest for very long, and if you're family around here, well, it's always lovely to see you. Uh, We are in the middle of a vision series. This is the fifth week of five, and then we'll jump back into our Love and Trouble series next week in John, and then we'll be in John all the way until Christmas, so be ready for that. We're gonna finish the book of John in the next couple of months. But this morning, we're looking at the the fourth and final pillar Of this sort of scouting report. If you'll remember, five weeks ago I said, you know, we looked at Numbers 13, where the spies go into the promised land and they come back and they give this report about where it was that they thought God was leading them, except their report was to say, we can't do it. We feel like grasshoppers to ourselves, and so we seem to our enemies. And it was only Caleb and Joshua that stood up and said, no, it doesn't matter. If God is with us, it doesn't matter if we're grasshoppers. It doesn't matter how we look. It doesn't matter how others perceive us. We can definitely take this land. Only do not reject God. Only do not dishonor God. Let's follow him faithfully. And I said, you know, five weeks ago... That what we were doing in some ways, I was bringing you a scouting report from the elders about what we feel like the other side of the river looks like with the intention of stirring your hearts to travel this road together. So we finished that this morning and looking at our fourth pillar. And I think when you came in this morning, they gave you a card like this. It's got all four of those pillars on it so that you can take a look at them if you want. But the fourth one is unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity, and as I've gotten feedback from all of you over the last four weeks, that's probably the one where people end up having the most questions. I think we sort of understand the idea of radiant peace rooted in confident expectation, or revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. We, we For the most part, you kind of get those things, prophetic uh, engagement rooted in demonstrable faith we looked at last week, but this idea of unblushing oddity feels a little strange, which I find surprising because it has been God's strategy throughout the the Scripture, right throughout the Scripture, on every page, God is making manifest His unblushing oddity. He never sort of walks away from it. He never tries to pretend like He is anything other than holy or separate. That He's doing things a little bit different than what the people expect. You think all the way back to Exodus, right? When when Moses is shepherding his sheep in Midian and he's living this cushy life, right on the farm, and it says as he's walking one day he sees this bush that's on fire, but it is not consumed. And it says as a result of that, that Moses does what he turns aside, he turns aside from his regular path because he goes, what the heck? What's going on? There's a bush that's on fire. I've never seen this before. It doesn't seem like it's going to burn itself out. What is that? It's unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. He draws Moses' attention. You could look at uh, at the defeat of Goliath, right? Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. And it would have been so easy for God to go, oh, you know what? Here's how we're gonna defeat the Philistines. I'm gonna create an even bigger giant for Israel, right? You think that guy's big? I can make somebody bigger. Because big is what the world looks at, right? But what God does instead is he sends a boy, a child, doesn't have a spear, doesn't have a sword, won't wear the king's armor. Instead, he's got a slingshot and a couple of rocks. It's weird, right? It's a weird way to do it. And he takes Goliath out. You go to Daniel chapter three when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace and it says they've heated up the furnace so hot that even the soldiers that throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace are killed, right? And as Nebuchadnezzar watches, he looks into the fire and he counts one, two, three, four, right? There's a fourth guy in the fire. And he looks in, he looks at the people around him, he says, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? I see four men unbound walking around. And then it says in Daniel three, that Nebuchadnezzar draws close to the fiery furnace. It's a death trap, right? What happens there? It's unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. Nebuchadnezzar is drawn towards the fire because he wants to see more closely what in the world is happening in there. You go to the New Testament and we see it all over, right? We celebrate the Christmas story. These angels come to shepherds of all things and they say to the shepherds, hey, guess what? The Messiah has been born. The king you've been waiting for, he is here. Want to meet him? Want to see him? You can. All you got to do is go into Bethlehem and you'll find an infant wrapped up in swaddling clothes, lying in a food trough. And what happens? The shepherds don't go, well, that doesn't really seem like a king. That doesn't really seem like what we've been waiting for. What do the shepherds do? They go, hey, let's drop what we're doing and go in and see this thing that we've been told about. What happens there? It's unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. In some ways, the shepherds are like, this isn't what we expected. It's not what we anticipated, but we need to see it with our own eyes. As a church and as a family, when we talk about unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity, it's talking about leaning into the things about who we are as followers of the Lord Jesus that are by their very nature peculiar. I talked a while back when we first started this series, I talked about the fact that there are all kinds of things about our beliefs that are strange to the world. And many times what the church has tried to do is we've tried to sort of round off the weird edges. You know what I mean? We've tried to make it seem like we're normal. Tried to make it seem like, well, the miracles in the Bible, they're not really that big of a deal, right? But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that God came to the earth and took on flesh, that he died for the sins of mankind, that God, the creator of all things, would die for sinners. That's something you believe, that he would lay down his life for broken, rotten people like me, and then he didn't stay dead. He paid the penalty for my sin, even though I didn't deserve that, and your sin as well. Then here's what he does. He walks out of that tomb. We believe that tomb is empty still because Jesus didn't just die for our sin. He rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is still interceding on our behalf today. You want to talk about believing weird stuff? We believe weird stuff, right? (laughs) And in those moments where we've tried to step away from the weirdness or we've tried to dumb it down or we've tried to make it a little more digestible, we haven't done anybody any favors and what we've essentially done is walked away from the very strategy of God himself which is I am who I am, right? In First Peter chapter two, well actually all of 1 Peter, uh, Peter is writing likely from Rome and he's writing to the churches in Asia who are being persecuted. They're Jewish and Gentile churches. He's writing to them and he's trying to encourage them. In 1 Peter chapter one, he, he reminds them that they've been born again to a living hope, right? That they've been born again, that they have this hope because of what Christ did for them. It's a great read. We're not gonna have time to read it this morning. At the end of 1 Peter chapter one, he reminds them that even the suffering and the persecution that they're facing because this church was being persecuted and if we get the dates right, the persecution was only gonna be ramping up. If Peter's writing from Rome at this time, the likelihood is that Nero's persecution of the church is only gonna get hotter before it goes away. He writes them and he says, the persecution that's happening to you, while it's been difficult, it actually serves a purpose. It serves so that the tested genuineness of your faith will be put on display. And we talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that that tested genuineness of our faith is not for God. It's not God going, hmm, I wonder if Darren actually believes. I wonder if Fullerton Free actually believes. No, the tested genuineness of our faith is a test for us so that we understand the reality of our own faith. But it's also a test that puts our faith on display for our neighbors, for our family members, for our coworkers. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, be encouraged. You've been born again to this living hope that is in Christ. And you don't need to worry about the persecution that's happening because it serves a purpose to put your true faith on display. And then in 1 Peter 2, which is our text this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he starts to describe what this looks like. Living a life of faith on display. And I will tell you, this chapter is full of oddity. Especially when you think about the culture in which it was written to and you think about the culture in which we live today. There are three broad categories I want us to see and we're gonna have to move really quick because we're gonna look at this whole chapter. Three broad categories I want you to see in First Peter chapter two. If you have a Bible, turn to First Peter chapter two. If you're looking for First Peter, uh, you'll find it just before Second Peter. So that's how you find that one. It's not super helpful, is it? Sorry. First Peter chapter, chapter two. And the three broad categories of oddity I want you to see as Peter describes it to this early church. The three broad categories are who we are, what we do, and what we don't do. Right? What makes us odd? What is this unblushing oddity we're talking about? It has to do with three broad things. Who we are, what we do and what we don't do. And for the sake of our time, I've, I've, got, I've got the whole chapter of 1 Peter 2 printed out three different times. And I've highlighted some things so that we can move through it quickly. The first thing I want you to look at is who we are. He describes it in great length here. He talks in uh, verses four and five. He says, as you come to him, that's talking about Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. One of the things he describes us as is living stones, like Jesus himself is a living stone that you and I are being built up as living stones in a spiritual house to be a residence for the Spirit of God. I love the picture of unity and camaraderie that this gives us. I don't know if you've realized this, but Peter is saying here that that God doesn't reside in a synagogue. He doesn't reside in a temple. He doesn't reside in a church building. This isn't where God lives, by the way. God lives in a living house made up of living stones, which is us. God resides in us both personally, and he resides beautifully in us corporately, in our unity. There is a home built for God. It's weird. It's a weird thing that we are living stones in a spiritual house being built up for God. Not only that, it says that we are called to be a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood, what's the idea there? The idea there is that there's not any one of us who were more holy than another or any one of us that has sort of special or secret access to God. That you don't have to come to me and get an access pass to God because I'm a pastor and I've got the ability to get you on the inside circle. No, no, no. You and I, each and every one of us, holy priesthood, equal standing, equal access to God because of the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. Each and every one of us, access to the throne room of God. Holy priesthood. The word holy, which is a weird word, admittedly, means to be set apart for sacred purpose. Set apart. God calls us out from among the regular folk, He calls us out from among the status quo, and He says, I've set you apart to be holy to be set apart for my purpose, to be a priesthood, to be living stones in a spiritual house. Jump down to verse seven. It says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Not only are we living stones in a spiritual house, not only are we a holy priesthood, but we are also honored as believers. Those who believe, it says, are honored. It's an honorable position because of our belief. It doesn't always feel like that in the world, does it? When you tell people you're a follower of Jesus, When you tell people you believe the Bible is true, when you tell people you believe that the Bible was inspired by God and written through human authors and they look at you like you're from space, it doesn't feel like a position of honor. But the word of God tells us it is a position of honor, that those of us who believe are honored. Jump down to verse 9, it says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We could look at all four of those categories individually, we don't have time this morning, but writing to a Jewish and a Gentile audience in these early churches in Asia, it would have been mind-blowing to them to hear that they were chosen, to hear that they were royal, adopted into the king's family, to hear that they were God's precious possession. That God had chosen them and selected them. But that is true of us. It's not just the Israelites. It's not just the characters we hear in the Bible, right? You and I, each and every one of us, are chosen. And it says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. He calls us free. We just recently sort of shifted our verbal shorthand here. Around. And we've always had the word free in the name of our church. But I love the idea that the shorthand for it is Fullerton free. We are declaring to our neighbors and to our friends and to the people that drive by and the people that come to worship in this place that we have been set free from sin and death. That we have been set free from the enemy. Live as people who are free. He says not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of God. We are free. I'd like to put those together in your mind. We are free servants of god free servants of god enslaved to god if you will paul says in 1 corinthians 9 19 though i am free and belong to no man i make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible second corinthians chapter 5 says he died in verse 15 he died that those who live would no longer live for themselves but for he who died and was raised free servants of god free slaves that's who we are Jump all the way down to the end in verse 24 and 25. We'll just look at 25. It says, for you were straying like sheep. He calls a sheep here. And you might, you might recoil at that and go, well, that, that's not really the way I want to be perceived. I don't see myself as a sheep, right? But he says, you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd, an overseer of your souls. We are sheep who have a shepherd that also is unique in our world. People who want to live independent, people who want to do their own thing, they want to chart their own course, they want to go where they want to go, when they want to go there, and do what they want to do once they've arrived. But we are people who follow a shepherd We are people who are guided on the path of life by someone who set us an example. That's all through 1 Peter as well. Not only is it peculiar who we are, it's peculiar what we do. We'll move through these quickly. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We are people, and this is weird, we are people who come to worship a God that has been rejected by mankind. As you come to him, chosen and precious before God, but rejected by men. That's who we're here to worship today, someone who's been rejected. That's a little strange. He says another thing we do in verse 7, which we already read, the honor is for us who believe. We are those who believe. Up in verse 5, it says we are those who offer spiritual sacrifices. It's in our mission statement that Fullerton Free, right, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Fullerton Free is a loving community, united in sacrifice, living like Christ for the glory of God. We are we're called to make sacrifices, to give ourselves away. Why? Because that's the life that Jesus lived. That's one of the things we do that you don't see in the rest of the world. We make these sacrifices that are only possible because of who God is because of what Jesus has done. Verse nine says that we're proclaimers or worshipers, that we've been brought out of the darkness to proclaim the excellencies of him. Verse 12 says we are those who keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, who live and and live out honorable conduct. It talks in verse 12 about our good deeds. That word good could also be translated beautiful. Our beautiful deeds, our attractive actions. We are people who are meant to live a beautiful life in response to the saving work of God. Verse 13 says, we are subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's something we do. We subject ourselves. We submit ourselves to other people. Not only that, it says in verse 17, we're called to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, to honor the emperor. We live in a world that doesn't really care about honoring anybody or anything except itself, right? And yet we are, we are called to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, to honor the emperor. We are called to be people of subjection and submission, laying our lives down for the glory of God. It's weird. It says in 19, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You want to talk about being odd or being peculiar. The followers of Jesus are people who endure in the midst of unjust suffering. That like Jesus, it says in First Peter, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he did not curse. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's, it's a bonkers way to live by our culture standards. Not fight for yourself. Not put up your dukes. We endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. Verse 21 says that we're people who follow in his steps. He set us an example, so we follow in his steps. Verse 24, talking about what we do. We no longer live to sin. We die to sin in 24 and live to righteousness. It's odd who we are, chosen, holy, precious, beloved, sojourners and exiles. It's odd what we do. We submit ourselves. We serve. We're subjected, right? We come to this God who's rejected by the world, not only what we do and who we are, but what we don't do. Verse one, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. What don't we do? The things that really the rest of the world uses to work their way up the ladder, right? How do you work your way up the success ladder in any corporation? You want to have a a successful political career? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The only way to do it And yet we're told to put those things away. I mean, this is the playbook to success. Stab whoever you gotta stab. Tear down other people. And yet, Peter looks at us and says, no, 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 that's not who you are. Who you are is different. Put away the malice and deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy and slander. Down in 11, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain from them. In verse 16, he says, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil but live as servants of God. Don't use your freedom to serve yourself, but use your freedom for the glory of God and the good of others. He says in verse 23, talking about what we put away, it says Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We're called to be people who don't threaten, who don't fight back, who don't have to argue and defend ourselves, but who entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, that we might die to sin, it says in verse 24. All of this is weird. None of it probably is new to most of you. But just as a refresher, Peter says to them, as he's looking at this persecuted church, he says, look, I'm not calling you to go into hiding. I'm not calling you to hunker down. I'm not calling you to blend in. I'm not calling you in the face of persecution to go underground and make it so that nobody can tell you're a follower of Jesus. Instead, what I'm telling you is lean further into the weirdness of what it means to follow this king. Lean further into that. Because this is very countercultural, right? Think about all of these things that we are and that we do or the things that we don't do. None of it blends with a self-serving, arrogant, pleasure-seeking, combative, impatient, unkind, and unbelieving culture. When we talk about unblushing oddity, we're not talking about contriving ways to look weird, right? We're not saying, oh, we're gonna be people who shave our heads and draw on false mustaches or whatever, right? We're not talking about getting silvery jumpsuits and all wearing the same tennis shoes. We're not talking about contriving weirdness for the sake of weirdness. We're not talking about putting on oddity as something false. What we're saying is that living like Jesus is weird enough. The problem is that we, you and me, have not been living like Jesus. And so our coworkers and our friends, our neighbors, the people in our culture, they look at us and they go, why would I want to be a Christian? I already know all the things they know. I don't, I don't want to get up early on a Sunday. I don't want to go to another club meeting. i got to go to PTA all week or whatever. Right? I'm part of the booster thing. I don't want to go to another meeting. If this is just a meeting, if it's just a social club, if it's just a place to get to know some people or to be you know, active in the community, we have done a disservice to the gospel because what we've done is we've rounded off the edges. But if we live like Christ, the world outside will look and go, what in the world is happening there? what in the world is going on inside that place? Look at the way that they're united. Look at the way that they love. Look at the way that they give. Look at the way that they serve. Look at who they are. Look at what they do. And look at what they don't do. Weird, right? That's who we're called to be. We are called to set an example, not by putting on a a fake weirdness, but just living like Christ, who we are is rooted in who he is. I love there at the beginning of 1 Peter 2 when it says, as you come to him, the living stone, you yourselves are being built. That being built is important. This work we're talking about is not something we do. It's not something the shepherding staff on our church does. Not something the elders endeavor in. The building of us into people who are unblushingly odd is something that God does. He says, as you come to this living stone, you yourselves are being built into a living stone. Who we are is rooted in who he is. Not only that, but who, what we do is rooted in who he is. Remember, it says in verse five that we're called to make acceptable spiritual sacrifices, right? That are only acceptable through Jesus Christ. What we do is only possible through Christ. Who we are is only possible through Christ. And even what we don't do is only possible as we follow Christ's example. We see at the end of 1 Peter 2. All of it is rooted in Jesus as the core and his word as our code of conduct. Jesus has the core. And if we live like that, it'll look weird. If we live like that, it will be odd. And we don't need to make any apology for that. There is no chance for pride in us, right? You could look at this and go, wow, kind of a big deal. I'm a chosen race. I'm a holy priesthood, right? I'm kind of a big deal, right? And your chest could start to swell up. You start thinking about who you are and what you do, what God has accomplished. And there could be a sense of pride, except then you get to verse nine, which is our core text this morning. And in verse 9 it says this that he has done these things in us so that we will do something else. So I want you to see it really clearly in verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession and then it says comma that you may. I want you to see the way this sentence structure works. You are dot 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 and you fill in the blank there. You are all these things. You are that you may. What's he saying? You are these things for a reason. There's a goal that's trying to be accomplished. You are chosen and royal and holy, God's precious possession, so that you may what? Declare the excellencies, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Before we start to get prideful, before we start to get puffed up about the fact that we are chosen and royal and holy, remember here that what God is hoping to do with us, those of us that are chosen and royal and holy, what he's hoping to do is to show a before and after story, right? And the the bummer about a before and after story is that you have to declare the before part two. There isn't a single one of us in this room, not one, who is chosen and royal and holy and precious before God. Beloved sojourners and exiles. There's not a single one of us who falls into that category that isn't broken. Broken and ruined, and sinful, apart from the saving work of Christ. Each and every one of us who find ourselves in the light are only in the light because that loving Savior drew us out of the darkness into his light. So before we get puffed up, remember that you are all these things. We are all this unblushing oddity that we would tell the world, this isn't who I would be apart from Jesus. I am only this because I was in the darkness, and he has drawn me into the light. We are here to proclaim the before and after. And I think sometimes Christians fall into this trap where we want to just focus on the after story, right? We want to tell the story about how we are redeemed and how we are saved and how God hears our prayers and how he cares about, you know, all these things which aren't false, but we forget to tell the part of the story that says, but apart from Jesus, apart from the grace of God, I would be ruined still. We're meant to tell both sides of that story and what that does is it combats the pride in us. It combats the pride because we have to go, well, I am these things, but I'm only these things because God chose it, because God did it. Every week as we've been walking through this vision series, I've been giving you a couple of of action steps, a couple of action items, the ways in which we then can proclaim the excellencies of him who took us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. We see in Hebrews chapter 13, It says uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13, Therefore let us go to him, that's Jesus, outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Psalm 96, verse 3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. We are outsiders for the sake of having his praise on our lips, that people would see our unblushing oddity and that they would be drawn. Without any force, without any gimmick. So a couple of action items, a couple of things we're hoping to do in the next little bit. Some of you have already seen we're wanting to declare with more clarity our story to the city and the neighborhood. That we have been set free. Some of this branding stuff we've been doing falls into that. Some of hiring a videographer to tell the stories of what God is doing among us. It falls into that. Letting people know about the freedom that we have that we've been taken out of the darkness and into the light. So part of it is simply telling our story well. One of the things we want to do, and it's kind of a big dream, but we're hoping in the next, I don't know how long it's going to take, we're hoping to buy a mobile Fullerton free vehicle, like maybe an old milk truck or an old food truck or something weird and quirky that we could remodel and that we could take off this property and out to local concerts or out to local sporting events or to high school soccer games or whatever, and we could show up and hand out bottles of water, hand out and just, just get to know. give out burritos or whatever, but just have a presence in our city to show up at the place where our neighbors are and love on our neighbors well. We're calling that the Fullerton Free Mobile. I don't know what's gonna, I, I hope it's a vehicle that looks like a grasshopper out of Numbers 13, right? That's what I'd like. I don't know if we can get a grasshopper vehicle. You guys start Googling that. Not now, Google it later. We've been talking about a creative art institute right here at the church. In fact, we're already taking steps to gather together artists We've remodeled the space upstairs here in the worship center that's meant to be a studio, a place where we can gather artists together, musicians together, right? All different kinds of artists. The church in history has done a great job, historically, of using art to draw people's attention away from themselves and up towards God. And yet somewhere over time, we sort of stepped away from utilizing the creativity of God and the beauty of God that we see revealed in the work of his people, and things tend to just get a little bit plain. So we're hoping in the days ahead to gather together a group of artists that would be working strategically to show through artistic expression the transition from darkness to light. That's our creative art institute. We've been talking about a dynamic ministry lab that we would be a place, this church would be a place where we're thinking ahead to the days ahead to go, how do we harness unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity? So that we're not giving in to gimmicks. We're not giving into the bait and switch. We're not giving in to begging people to come and listen to what we have to say. Or forcing things down people's throats. But that we're thinking through how do we live into the oddity of who we are? so that people will be drawn to our Jesus, a dynamic ministry lab to draw leaders from all over, to be thinking creatively about how we don't succumb to the marketing techniques of the world, but rather we use the draw of Christ. And the last thing is the idea of an invitational campus. I talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that I feel like there's kind of an invisible barrier. We have this beautiful property, but I feel like there's this invisible barrier. I think our neighbors drive by and they think that, that stuff is for those church people. That's their stuff, that's their gym, that's their coffee shop, that's their parking garage, whatever. And while, while we don't have a fence, it feels like we got a fence. One of the things we want to do in, in the like weeks ahead, months ahead, is to tear down that invisible wall. We're already doing some of this work. We've got Cal State Fullerton using our parking garage every day of the week, right? They're here already. We're, we're transforming our coffee shop so that it becomes a shared workspace where people can come in, get fast Wi-Fi, plug in their computers, and work. We've got all these entrepreneurial people. We want to turn that into a spot where people can gather. We want to create spaces on our campus where people can gather together and, and, and you know, fellowship and get to know one another and, and grow. We were doing community meetings, we've already talked about that. We're already, Fullerton High School's using our gym every day of the week because theirs got condemned. We're not happy that their gym got condemned, but we are happy that in the wake of that, in the wake of that they needed a place where they could practice volleyball and whatever, and we went, hey, you know what, we've got a gym that God gave us, come and use it, right? A way to get people here so that we can show them this Jesus that took us out of the darkness and into his light. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we're hoping to renovate the space we sit in right now. I will tell you that so much in the Bible talks about Jesus being light. When we come together to worship in a service like this, the goal of what we're trying to do is to draw attention away from the people on stage and to draw people's attention up and out to the light and the truth of who the Lord Jesus is. But for whatever reason, over the years, we've made this feel really dark in here, right? It feels really dark. We use these lights. They're theatrical lights, and I understand why we use them. But but in some sense, what's happening in this room feels pretty much like what you'd get in a theater anywhere else, right? It just feels like we're putting on a show. Can I tell you what we do on Sundays is not putting on a show. What we're doing here on Sundays is we're trying to capture the hearts of people and reroute their eyes, take them by the chin, and lift their eyes to the glory of God. And so we went to an architectural firm and we started saying, man, what I'd really like is for it to feel light. I'd really like to flood this place with light. We got this rapture hatch uh, that we haven't, uh, we haven't, no, I don't think anybody's ascended through there in a while. So I'm, uh, but I'd love for this room to feel filled with light. I'd love for this to feel like a sacred space. I'd love for this place to be timeless and classic. I I love the work that our artists did in creating this love and trouble wall, but I don't want to be redesigning what the room looks like, like you would do with a theater or like you would do with a production. I want to create something beautiful and timeless, filled with light, a sacred space that will draw people's attention away from those on stage and toward the God those people serve. And so uh, we have a couple of designs. Don't freak out, but here they are, right? Uh, A couple of renderings of what this would look like. We take these side walls and we curve them. So another thing that's weird about this building is that from the outside, it just looks like a big pizza hut, right? You know that? And people are always like, what is this? What we want to do is incorporate some of that curve. We want to incorporate some of that curve into what it looks like on the inside. So we curve these side walls. The stage becomes curved. That back wall becomes curved. The pipe organ comes out. We light it with natural light. <laughs> you pipe organ nerds. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. I should probably, just for the sake of letting other people be happy, I should say, sometimes we're going to play Xbox on these screens. Any of those people? No? Yeah? There's like four of us. It's fine. No, we're not, gonna, we're not actually going to do that. The, the, hatch, uh, the hatch gets opened up, right? The hatch gets opened up, and either we flood this room with natural sunlight, or we replicate natural light in the center so that we're not using colored lights, we're not using moving lights, there's no fog machines, none of that theatrics. But just the light filling the space, right? The stage just stays put like this. There's also, uh, you can kind of see the way we accentuate that swoop out of the roof. And then, uh, and then go to the next picture. This, there's, a, there's a soffit that comes down and out and sort of transcends over, which is, again, still meant to draw people up and out. To take your eyes off of this and push your eyes heavenward, right? Now, all of that, I don't want to get hung up on this, so let's take that away. The idea here is that we are actively working to lean into our unblushing oddity, to lean into the things that are strange, to lean into the things that are, that are bonkers about us so that what is created is an, an unforced appeal. You see what happens, it says in verse 12 is that they, First Peter chapter 2, they will see our good deeds and glorify our Father. They will see our good, our beautiful. They will see our honorable actions, the attractive work that we do, the way we serve and the way that we love, the oddity of who we are in a culture like this. And they won't glorify us. They won't glorify our church. We're not printing up any EV-free bumper stickers or whatever. We're not building a brand here. We're lifting up the name of Christ that they would see us and they would worship him. It happens all throughout the Bible. Jesus himself says, I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. He says in Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter five, fourteen, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That they see us and glorify him, that's the goal, unforced appeal, no gimmicks, no bait and switch, we never see Jesus go, hey, come out to my sermon on the mount, we're gonna give one lucky winner 500 denarii, right? We're not trying to trick people, we never see Jesus go, hey, I'm doing a seminar on cabinetry this afternoon, I'm a carpenter, I don't know if you know that, come out to my cabinetry seminar, and then when they show up he's like, ha ha, I'm gonna talk to you about the fact that I'm the redeemer, you know? We just wanted to figure out how to get them level, you know, whatever. Jesus wasn't tricking people. <laughs> there were no gimmicks, there was no bait and switch, there was no begging. He was who he was and who he was drew people to him. I was, in, uh, I was in West Hollywood, I'm sorry I'm over my time but I'm gonna just go another second here. I was in West Hollywood several years ago with a group of college students and uh, we were doing street evangelism. And I, uh, I, my job wasn't to do street evangelism. I paired these college students up into groups of two. My job was just to make sure they were safe, make sure they didn't get mugged or attacked or whatever. So I had my phone and I'm walking around in West Hollywood. And uh, as I'm walking in West Hollywood, I, I've, I know where my groups of college students are. I'm watching. I walk past a group of uh, five kids sitting on the curb, young, probably 17, 18, four boys and a girl who I found out later was a boy dressed up like a girl. There's five of them. And uh, when I walk past, they go, hey, dude, dude, would you buy us some cinnamon toast crunch? And I stopped and I looked at him and I was like, what? And they're like, would you buy us some cinnamon toast crunch? And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I love cinnamon toast crunch. Yeah, I I will buy you some cinnamon toast crunch if you let me have a bowl. And they were like, "Yeah, dude, we don't whatever, knock yourself out." So I go into the I go into the Vons and I buy a big family-sized box of cinnamon toast crunch. I buy some paper bowls, I buy some milk, the whole deal. I come back out, I sit on the curb, plastic spoon, sit on the curb. I pour myself a bowl, I pass the stuff down and I just eat my cinnamon toast crunch. And after a while, these guys look at me and they're like, "Dude, what's the thing with you? Like, what's your deal?" And I'm like, "I just love cinnamon toast crunch, like you guys, you know." And they're like, "No, dude, we we ask people this all the time and nobody ever stops, but definitely nobody sits down here and has a bowl of cereal with us. Like, what's your thing? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if you'd asked me for captain crunch, I'd have kept walking. I don't like that, but (laughs) you asked me for cinnamon toast crunch and that happens to be my jam. So I, so I just thought it sounded good. Can I have another bowl by the way? So I poured another bowl and they're like, dude, what are you doing here in West Hollywood? And I said, oh, I'm here with a group of Christian college students who are sharing, uh, sharing Jesus with people. In fact, one of my teams is right there, and one of my teams is down there by the restaurant, and one of my teams is over there by that tree. And they were like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm just making sure that they don't get mugged by people like you. And, uh, <laughs> and they, <laughs> they laughed like that, and they're like, that's pretty funny. And I'm like, let me have the Cinnamon Toast Crunch. So I poured myself a third bowl, and, uh, <laughs> and then one of them goes, dude, are you gonna do the thing? And I said, what? And they go, are you going to do, you you said you're here telling people about Jesus. I said, "Oh, no, I'm not here telling people about Jesus. They're telling people about Jesus. I'm protecting, I'm protecting them, you know. And they said, dude, we want you to tell us what they're telling people. And I was like, all right, that's not really what I'm out here for, but okay. And uh, so I lay out the reality of who Christ is, of what he did. All five of these kids prayed to accept Jesus on the side of the curb, all right? Listen, it it doesn't always go like that, but can I tell you what happened? That wasn't me handing out gospel tracts. That wasn't me like tapping people on the shoulders going, hey, can I give you a little spiel about Jesus? What that was was me just being me. And who I am is is weird, right? (laughs) Who I am is a guy who has no reservation whatsoever to sit down on a curb on Santa Monica Boulevard and sit with people I've never met before who are living on the street. All five of these guys were male prostitutes in West Hollywood. And I got no problem sharing a bowl of cereal with guys like that, and that's that's weird. It was weird to them. It was weird to them that I would sit and eat a bowl of cereal with them, and the weirdness made them go, what's your thing? That's what we're talking about. What we're talking about is living a life of unblushing oddity, love that people have never seen, unity that people can't describe, sacrifice and service, kindness and peace and generosity, prophetic engagement that makes people go, what is going on there? so that we don't have to put up banners. We don't have to take out ads on Facebook. We're not doing marketing on Instagram. Our marketing, if there is such a thing, is living like Christ and allowing our Christ-likeness to be what is magnetic. We're going to finish our service this morning with a time of reflection. You know, we've gone over these these four pillars. Radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. Revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. Solidarity. Prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith, and unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. When you came in this morning, they gave you a card that had those four pillars. I'd encourage you to stick this up on your refrigerator or tuck it into your Bible or someplace you can see it. But this morning in particular, we're going to have a time of silence as we finish our service. And I would love for you to ask yourself the question what now? Because here's the thing. I'm excited about this vision. I'm excited about what it looks like on the other side of the river. I'm excited about the invitational campus and all of these things, but I'm not going there by myself. I won't go. We're a family. We go together, not at all. And as a family, then what that requires is it isn't enough for the staff to be excited. It's not enough for the elders to be excited. It's not enough for me to be able to get up and go, here's why I think unblushing appeal matters or, or, or unforced appeal matters. It's, it's not enough for me to be passionate about that. Each and every one of us who are family here, and that's, that's a lot of us, have to go, what's my part in this? What now? How do I respond? Because it's not enough for Joshua and Caleb to say, let's go. We can definitely do it. All of the people they said that to said no, and they tried to kill Joshua and Caleb. Maybe this is my last Sunday at this church, right? (laughs) Or better yet, what if the people of Israel on that particular day had said, you know what? We see it. We see God. We see what he's called us to. Let's go. I think that's our response this morning. We see it. Let's go. But then that requires us individually saying, What's my part? Maybe that's a financial piece. Maybe that's a sacrifice piece. Maybe that's focusing on kindness and generosity and love. I don't know what it looks like for you, and I don't want to dictate that. I want you to let the Spirit of God dictate that. So we're going to have a time of silence, a couple minutes. It might feel weird to you. Please don't get up and leave, right? The service is not finished. Let me let, just as a side note, let me say this. Oh, I wasn't talking about Bambi. <laughs> That's, that wasn't time I wasn't talking about her. We as a culture, this church, for whatever reason, sometimes we like to slip out a little bit early. Maybe you like to get to Mimi's before the line or whatever. But can I tell you, when you abandon the worship of Jesus early to go and f- feed yourself, or you abandon worship early to go and get to the carbs so you don't have to sit in a long line of people coming out, when, when you prioritize something over the worship of Christ in this place, you're telling a story. You're declaring something about Jesus, and it's not something good. We have, to, we have to finish together, right? Let's finish our worship together. So we're going to have a time of silence. I want you to reflect on this. I want you to take a pen, and as the Spirit of God prompts you, I just invite you to write some things out here. You've got plenty of space. What now for us? And then in a minute, we're going to sing one closing song, but I invite you now, just listen to the Spirit of God. Maybe open up your hands, listen to the Spirit of God, and go, where, where would you call me to go next?